Today's TribCast is presented by the Office of Public Insurance Counsel. Are you confused about what insurance coverage is right for you? Try OPIC's policy comparison tool at www.opic.texas.gov. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Hello, this is Robert Morrow, the chairman of the Travis County Republican Party, welcoming you to another fabulous edition of the TripCast. Also, I'm voting for Libertarian Gary Johnson for president, for obvious reasons. And now, here is your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the TribCast for the first week of July. I'm joined by CEO Evan Smith, who can't wait to say something, anything. Well, I, I just have to say that the process of getting Robert Morrow to do the intro for this TribCast was something I'll take to my grave with me. It was one of the best experiences ever. Let's just say there was a lot of editing involved. There, well, no, well, what, the, what there was was some serious negotiation. Very really? serious. I'm, su- Very I'm surprised that he said he's voting for Gary Johnson because Reporter I thought Reporter Jay Root. I thought as a Republic as the Republican Party chairman that like you would have to pledge some allegiance to the nominee or there something. Would you not? Or really seriously? I don't know. He, 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 like um, if you, if he you voted before, if you vote in a uh, Democratic primary, for example, you can't be a candidate, a Republican candidate. Like, I mean, he doesn't exactly follow any of the rules. Well, that's a good point. Uh, reporter Alexa Oda. Hello. Plus, you were going to bring a Robert Morrow jester hat. To yeah, where is the I jester left hat? It at my desk. The whole Sorry, podcast. I, I will say he was very nice to do the, the intro. That's good. Yeah, and his pronunciation of my name was better than most state lawmakers. That's actually, it didn't occur to me. How do people pronounce Wait, it? Wait, how? Oh, you know, Ramshaw, Ramshaw. R- there's all kinds R- of Rimshot, Rickshaw. At least your boss says your last name correctly. <laughs> Who doesn't say your uh, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <you're> busted. Ura. <laughs> Ura. Ura. Busted? I'm not, I'm not going to fake it up and pretend that I'm, I speak Spanish. You better right take now. those Spanish classes in San Miguel de Allende on apparently your vacation I do, next Apparently week. I do. All right. Uh, well, I'd like to start by uh, touching on the news. We got 72 hours after the abortion ruling, uh, and that was basically the release of these long-awaited statistics on uh, the numbers of abortions in Texas in the aftermath of House Bill 2, the 2013 abortion regulations. Great. Both Evan and Jay get on their phone the moment we start talking about abortion. I was looking at my notes because I wrote myself a couple of notes here. Okay. okay. Uh, Jay has an excuse. I know what Evan's doing. I'm texting Tweeting. myself to remind myself <laughs> that Texting it's Robert Morrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alexa, hey, as, as the, uh, the women's health reporter on the TripCast, tell us what we learned about these abortion stats. So just days after uh, the 2013 abortion restrictions were struck down, we learned that um, the number of abortions essentially plummeted in Texas, specifically those, the non-surgical abortions known as Medical abortions or drug-induced abortions, and um, but overall the number went down by about nine thousand. And you saw the medical abortions, which are you know the ones you can take sort of earlier in your pregnancy. Those went down. I mean, they were at sixteen thousand and went down to just shot of five thousand. So the the 
effects of the 2014, the 2013 restrictions that went partly into effect at the end of 2013 and then in 2014 were pretty stark when you look at these numbers. And so what does it mean, actually, that we saw, I mean, drug-induced abortions, uh, the fact that we saw them drop so much, why did that happen, and what effect did it actually have on the surgical version of the procedure? Well, so under HB2, it essentially became harder to have drug-induced abortions. Women were required to go um, additional visits into a clinic, which were the numbers of those themselves were decreasing at that same time. Um, you could get, they reduced the amount of length into your into your pregnancy that you could actually get a drug-induced abortion. And so those numbers were, were pretty drastic and it drove up some of the surgical numbers, um, particularly those that are in the sort of early pregnancy up to 12 weeks. So is it the, I mean, what then should we assume that, I mean, did Republican lawmakers know that that was going to happen? Because that is the most interesting part of this to me is that, sure, they, they reduced the number of abortions overall, but they actually forced more women to go through the surgical procedure, right. you know. Well, and I think, you know, it's part of... And later is slightly later in pregnancy, right? Right. I mean, right. and, and the, I think the issue was, you know, sort of there was always this argument, this is about women's health, it's all about women's health. And during oral arguments, the justices flat out asked um, the state's attorneys, you know, is, was your intention to drive up the number of women having surgical abortions? Because isn't that what this is going to do? At the time, these numbers still hadn't come out yet. There were claims that they were being purposely withheld um, and that they had actually been ready and would have been ready in time for oral arguments and would have you know, would have damaged the state's argument that this was about women's health. And so I think that the numbers weren't great, and it wasn't great that they came out just days after this ruling. It, in fact, Ross has written, Ross Ramsey has yeah. written a column saying as much that this was an effort on the part of those who supported HB2 to to stow away, stash, quash statistics that would have made them look bad. I, I am wondering why those things are mutually exclusive. Could you not have seen a reduction in abortions and also an improvement in quotes to women's health? Does one necessarily invalidate the other? Not necessarily, but the problem here was that the justices said that Texas was unable to provide any evidence that this actually right. improved women's health. You had big medical... That seems to be the problem. Not that the abortions went down in number, but that there was absolutely no quantifiable benefit to women's health that would have supported their argument. Right. It's right? certainly not because suddenly more women were getting great access to contraception. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested right. to see what the birth rate looks like. I don't know if we have those statistics. Either. No, we're well, still waiting on those two. Right. It sounds like we don't have the full information because I, I, I would like to know how many people went to Mexico, how many people right. went to New Mexico, right. how many people went to Oklahoma or wherever. You well, know, in fact, to, there is an organization we wrote about. In fact, you may have written about this woman who was raising money to send women out of state. Yeah, there are several groups in Texas was that it, do this. Not, not Lilith Fund, but it was something Lilith Fund is one of them. Um, this was Fun Texas Women or Fun right. Texas Choice. And so theoretically, there are going to be numbers associated with how many people sought help from them to go out of state. And presumably, like the New Mexico abortion, there's an abortion clinic over the, like Las Cruces mm -hmm. or someplace. Mm -hmm. Presumably, they would be able to quantify the number of Texas yeah, women I mean, that came over. Yeah, I mean, those numbers did go up. They didn't go up substantially, which I think sort of gets back to the idea that the number of legal abortions, those recorded by the state, went down and they didn't 
there wasn't sort of an increase in other areas that made up for the decrease yeah. in Texas. Mm-hmm. And you don't, we have no idea of how many women either did self-induced abortions, either went to Mexico to get their abortions. And I think that's part of the problem here. And, and the other thing is that the number of complications remained, you know, less than 1% of all abortions. And again, that wouldn't have helped the state if the idea was to make this procedure safer. These numbers would have proved that even under these new restrictions, the number of complications stayed extremely, extremely low. Can we prove or could we prove if we were able to get access to this that the statistics were available before oral arguments but were kept from our view? That's what we've been told by sources, that they that they were prepared sort of, that they were ready to go essentially in February and were sort of finalized around that time and maybe could have been ready to go by or arguments which were in early March. Presumably I mean, somebody it... had to have said, the state had to have said, don't release these statistics. Somebody had the to have their is, fingerprints The question on is it. who said that? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and who was, you know, clearly the one thing we do know is that the process this year for releasing the numbers was different, was yeah. different mm-hmm. than it has been in years past. And I think right. the big question is why that is. I mean, any logical person could assume the fact that these numbers came out 72 hours after the abortion ruling cannot be a coincidence. I mean, clearly it was, yep. you know, what a three-day difference when we were seeing email traffic from, you know, months ago insinuating that these numbers were basically all but ready. Well, and the ACLU, they sent their first letter to the health agency Mm -hmm. probably a week or a week and a half before the ruling came down, and the commissioner didn't respond to them until three days after the ruling. And so, you know, there was a length of period there where they essentially could have responded and said, you know, we're coming out with these soon or could have sort of prepared a little bit for it, but instead they just said the day of, we're releasing these before end of business, and that's when they did. I mean, the decision by the, the Supreme Court justices would have already been made. It was really public opinion that would have might have been swayed by releasing these numbers earlier, right? I mean, it's not Unless like, they would have been released ahead of oral arguments. But that was, you know, Yeah, when did that ago. conclude? That was in March. Right. right. So, you know, if they... In, if they had been ready in February, like some people suggested they were, they might have been taken able to take into account. But, I mean, like you said, the Supreme Court's big big beef was that there w- was no real evidence. And I think that's that's the challenge here. For them. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, the numbers wouldn't have helped Texas' case anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, you can shoot any questions about this our way. Uh, Alexa, were there any regional variations in the data? I mean, we do have a county by county breakdown, um, and it appears that the that the drops in abortion were felt more in West Texas, the Panhandle, in the Rio Grande Valley, places where you saw sort of those clinics close mm-hmm. early on, and women were left with no access within 50, 100 miles. Um, so that's where you saw some of the biggest drops. And when you look at it, the racial breakdown, um, Hispanic women were disproportionately affected by what this, this drop, whether it was because of HB2 or not. Um, they saw an 18% drop in the number of abortions. That's compared to 14 in the state and seven and six among black and white women. Can I ask a question about what happens now? You can ask whatever you'd like. So Jonathan Stickland on the House and uh, others on the Senate, many multiple people in the Senate have said, we're going to come riding back into town in January and we're going to come up with all this stuff that we can do to counterman the decision or, you know, we're going to go to the wall on this issue in the next step. What can they do legally? What what can be done at this point legally? It's it's going to be much harder to pass anything because yeah. of the Supreme Court ruling that says you need to provide evidence and if you're going to pass any sort of health justified restriction. Yeah. And I think at this point, some of the folks within the anti-abortion movement are sort of 
trying they're kind of all over the place there are different proposals from restricting uh, specific procedures to uh, you know there's folks who w might want to pull back the 20-week ban uh, there's an exception for fetal abnormalities after a 20-week ban there's definitely things they can do it's just unclear whether they'll have enough evidence to be able to defend those in court if that's where this ends up but I think I, that hasn't politically, stopped them before. Yeah, politically, yeah. I think we're looking at status quo. I mean, obviously, they're restrained legally, but politically, they're not restrained at all. Exactly. And it's going to basically be, um, you know, more chest thumping about the, this issue. Um, and the Democrats are in a weak position as they always have been. It's just that they got stronger legally, but politically, they're still just as well, weak the, as the, they've the, always the, been. The, the fact is that the House will be nearly two-thirds Republican. Mm-hmm. The Senate will be nearly two-thirds Republican, and if you add Eddie Lucio, who's likely to vote again with the Republicans on this issue, the Democrats don't really have the ability to do anything other than use procedure to hold this off. Sure, but I think if you Back look where at— we were in 2013. But if you look at the mm -hmm. last legislative session, they had these huge majorities, and even then, there were yeah. about 20 abortion measures that that died. I mean, somewhere along the way, they were left in committee. Yeah. They died on the floor. There was only one big abortion measure that was passed, and that was specific to minors who were trying to get abortions. I, I think that the conversation this session, because of the Supreme Court case, just may be a little bit different. Yeah. Right? It may make it but man, social issues we'll will be back on the table yep. again. Um, yep. A couple questions from Facebook. Susan Gutierrez asks, any chance that Texas will reverse the laws that eliminated funding to Planned Parenthood? Absolutely not. Right. So I, and I think that one has not. I don't know. Has there been a legal challenge to that? No, I mean, we are still waiting on the state to officially kick Planned Parenthood out of Medicaid. Um, they haven't actually, there was a lawsuit filed to stop that, but without them officially kicking them out, there's nowhere to go. Um, in terms of the women's health programs, those have been restructured without Planned Parenthood. It's unlikely that they'll bring them back. Right. And Anne Firstenow Walker asks, will those closed clinics reopen? Uh, I think that's the big question. Yeah, not not anytime soon. Uh, these, you know, we're down to 19 clinics from more than 40 before this law was passed, and they all have to hire staff, find facilities, um, specifically those in West Texas. That's not going to be as easy as in some of the big metro areas. And then they have to apply for a license from the state, which also will be no walk in the park. Is the state in any position to deny licenses now? Not necessarily. They can just be very slow. Play it. They can be slow. It could take up to a year, and they can be very strict in making sure that everything's in line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, one more question before we move topics. David Pasnick asks, are they still trying to promote the Texas Women's Health Program to replace, you know, the services Planned Parenthood was providing? Yeah. The, so just actually on July 1st, they relaunched sort of the latest iteration of the women's health programs here in Texas. And the big question, again, is are there enough providers? Um, health officials say that they have more providers than ever before. Um, but I think we're sort of in the early days and it'll take a little while to see how effective that program is. As being great. All right. Uh, well, Jay, we're rolling out the second phase of our year-long <clears throat> bordering on insecurity project this week uh, with a series of stories on um, corruption on our side of the border and largely in, in mm. Customs and Border Protection, Border Patrol, um, questions about how it uh, contributes to our nation's insecurity. Uh, tell us about why this part of the series is so important and a little bit about what you've learned about some of these actors. Well, this is homegrown corruption. You know, we, we often think about corruption as happening in Mexico or somewhere else. And these are American citizens. I mean, you have to be an American citizen to be eligible for employment at uh, Customs and Border Protection. So these are people that are U.S. citizens, and they've done the unthinkable. They've used their badge to move people or drugs for the most part. I mean, there's some, uh, obviously some money laundering that we 
found, some gun running. But um, it's a real problem. We, we don't really know the extent of it. I mean, there's report after report that has shown that the government hasn't really gotten a good handle on this. And a lot of it stems from the way uh, Customs and Border Protection was created. I mean, there was Customs and there was a Border Patrol. They put them together under a new agency, and they got rid of a lot of uh, internal affairs people. And then we had Congress saying, we've got to get more boots on the ground. That's what we're hearing now, by the way, of course. Um, and that's what they were saying, you know, in the mid-2000s, and that we ramped up dramatically the boots on the ground on the border. Well, guess what? They cut some corners. Um, you know, we have uh, the former head of uh, internal affairs, uh, a, a good interview with him, James Tomshek, um, and talks about all the corners that were cut. Um, and now they're trying to uh, do a much better job of it. But there are a real, we have dozens of examples. Uh, we're going to roll out a database. By the time people are listening to this, some of the people are listening mm -hmm. to this, we will, they'll be able to look at our database that we have of dozens of agents. And these narratives are incredible. You've read some of them, Emily, of, mm -hmm. of people who you just think, what are you thinking? I mean, right. for a few thousand dollars, people are waving people through, and then they get... You know, the, the ones who get caught, I mean, you know, go to prison for a very long time. Right. And um, so this database that we're going to roll out, this interactive tool, is going to show, you know, it, it's got more than 140 agents or Customs and Border Patrol folks who have been um, either accused or largely convicted, most of them, of, of corruption. Uh, now, obviously, that's a small fraction of the total. There are tens of thousands of, of these, you know, of personnel in these agencies. But some of the, the crimes are unbelievable. I mean, and there are people who will, you know, really risk their career for a thousand bucks, but there are also people who are bringing in like a yeah, million dollars. Right. I mean, tell us some of the sort of most outlandish cases. I mean, there were luxury hot tubs. Right, you know. right. I mean, these narratives, you know, like going through them, it's really, uh, it's it's shocking. You know, the, the uh, there were a, a br a brothers in uh, California who made over a million dollars, uh, and one of the brothers I think it was Fidel Villarreal. I think that's the the last the name. I think I have that right. But he was the face of the Border Patrol in San Diego. They had him on TV, you know, like, like marketing saying, campaigns. And he and he was at, he was pretending to be a smuggler in the ads. And he, actually, he really was a smuggler. Um, so you see some of these cases, you just shake your head at it. But the other thing is politically, we talk about you know we hear a lot about building walls on the border. Um, you know, and you have to ask yourself, what good is a wall if you can pay somebody to go through it or around it or over it or whatever? Um, and, you know, I don't I don't think that that uh, it's most Border Patrol agents. I mean, it's it's a it's a small fraction, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, a tiny percentage or, or you know, some people say as many. James Tomshek told us as many as, as 20 percent, you know, have, have done something that they shouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. Um, whatever the number is, one agent waving people through can defeat so much infrastructure, so many millions of dollars that you put at it that um, it's, a, it's a real problem and it really needs to be addressed. And when you hear uh, politicians saying we need more bo boots on the ground and we need walls, that, you know, they really need to be careful about the integrity of the people that they're hiring. And we need to take, a, you know, really serious steps to correct the the infrastructure problems in, in fixing that. The 140 people in the database are all in Texas? 
No, they're not. They're, they're this is this is a national okay. situation. But Texas and, is obviously a dis- right. disproportionately a big one. Yeah. represented right. in it. I'm right. curious what the political reaction was to your story yesterday about the border patrol agent who was accused of being involved in this sort of beheading. Because you see all of this like. We have to secure the border first. We have to send more people down there. And then there's no sort of attention. When there's someone, you know, within our own ranks, to put it that way, what was their reaction? I mean, was there outcry from some of those political leaders? Well, it's it's. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I've noticed about this, and I frankly, it's been very frustrating to me, is I, I was, uh, you know, a week ago was sitting with Jim Henson from the UT uh, Politics Project, and he was showing me the polls, which once again, as they have for years now, said that border security and immigration are far and away the top issues. And these are the issues when you say unprompted, it's not, you know, give, give you a list. It's unprompted. They say this, these are the issues that I'm concerned about. And yet we, we, we write these stories and, and there's, it's muted. It's muted. It really honestly is muted. Now, uh, a lot of people are reading the, the Hoel Luna story, which we published yesterday, about a Border Patrol agent who is indicted on right. capital murder charges. It's in the Washington Post today, mm-hmm. picked up by the Post. It's among their most read stories of the day. It's getting, to Alexis' point, it is getting out. It, it is getting right? out, but, but again, like, you don't see the type of political reaction people you know it's a good yarn it's a it's a good story it's an interesting story well, it'd be great if some of the same people who made a big priority of border security in the last let's say session would say wait a minute we need to hold on one second not necessarily disable the effort we put in place through the legislation that put 800 million on the border but maybe we need to be working more closely to try to weed out the bad apples Right. right. Or whether they're even acknowledging Bingo. it. Bingo. It's hard to fight for more boots on the ground if, some, if the boots are, are doing beheadings. I mean, you know, it's Well, and, and let's also acknowledge that there's a little bit of willful denial of the reality of it down there. You know, there are people who would say we don't have a problem because it doesn't reflect well on the communities in which these problems are taking place. And the fact is the problems do exist. Well, and let's bring well, I think it, the difference is whether the communities it's, are safe. Right. It's, that's it's, the difference. Right. Whether it's sort of the, the violence spilling over versus bad players within the well, community. Well, but you know that there are people all along the border, from one end of the border or another, who hear talk of corruption and they say, well, that's a cliche or a stereotype. Well, this is actually yeah. No, I don't disagree with you. Proof that there is at least in this community, as in other communities, corruption. Largely within the country's largest law enforcement agency. Right. I mean, some of the tales that were most compelling to me, frankly, were the ones where it was a little bit. It wasn't cut and dried. It was like you know, uh, romantic. Someone was letting a a woman over because they'd fallen in love with her. Or Nicole Cobbler's story today about Mm -hmm. the border patrol agent who fell in love. We think with this drug smuggler. Right. right. You know, it's like it's like the oldest the oldest story right. in the world. Or right? someone's trying to get, you know, helping someone else get family members across. I mean, yeah. there were cases of agents who got busted. They weren't even accepting money or bribes. They were just helping a friend, yeah. you know, get a relative into the country or looking the other way. I mean, the complicated thing about the Border Patrol is that so many of these agents have, you know, family history on the other side of the border. Yeah. And so it's it's more t- of a tangled web than just bad people doing bad things. You know? it, it, it is. And, right. and that's that also brings up an issue of they don't really have a process for looking at what, ha- you know, basically their lives begin on this side of the border and they don't look at anything that happened on the other side. And in the Hoel Luna case, Hoel Luna himself wrote to his supervisors and said, my family's being threatened and they're telling me if I don't move drugs for the Gulf cartel, 
something bad's going to happen to my, to me and my family members and and we don't know what they did and and this is one of the problems is the absolute secrecy the veil of secrecy hanging over all of this and you know we asked uh, chairman Mike McCall of the Homeland Security Committee uh, to uh, we asked his office to help get uh, reports progress reports on uh, on corruption because there was a 2010 law um, that was supposed to fix some of this stuff and they had to to produce regular reports and you know they're like oh no it's marked official use only you can't have it so we can't know what they're doing and I really think you know and that's one of the trends that we've seen throughout this project is the federal secrecy is blocking any uh, ability of, for the public to understand what's going on and to provide a check against Well, well some for of that this. matter, we have a version you know? of that in Texas. Yeah, where we absolutely do. There have like been complaints about insufficient metrics from DPS on how that border security money has been spent and what the interdictions have been at the border. And people have said, we can't really have a, a fair fight over this issue if you are totally non-transparent about the data. On Facebook, Scott Metters-Bray asks, how does Border Patrol training and vetting compare to other enforcement agencies? Do we have any indication? That's a good, that's a very Mm -hmm. good question. I mean, I think, you know, again, um, the vetting has gotten better. We do know that they are. They're requiring more polygraphs. polygraphs. We actually are going to have a story on that this weekend, right. Scott. So stay tuned right. about what they're, how they've upped their sort of training and vetting process. And, and, and they're doing reinvestigations. The one of the big problems is the internal affairs compares very poorly with other agencies. They have far fewer internal affairs agents per agent, basically per. Border Patrol slash Customs agents than they do in other agencies. What does that mean? What is internal affairs? Well, basically, internal affairs is like you know to police the cops, right? Exactly. And so you know when there's something that that, you know a lot of these cases start there, Mm -hmm. and there's all kind of turf battles. Nina's going to write about that, Mm -hmm. and the story that you're talking about for this weekend, Nina Satija, Um, and um, it's a it's a real problem. And there's also a cautionary tale. You put your finger on it, Evan, for for DPS because DPS is ramping up very, very quickly, and and there's the same sort of clamor on the state level that we saw on the federal level, and, you know, we haven't, you know, gotten as much information as we would like from them about what their procedures are, how they're going to avoid the same type of problem. So, and I've talked to some people in in law enforcement in South Texas who basically are telling me, you know, we're just waiting for, to see some DPS agents in in the courtroom. And part two of this is when we get in the 85th session, you know there's going to be a drumbeat to have more funding for border security. You don't think the border security problem has been solved by the last session, right? Well, no, right. and they're, they're, all, they're not in the budget cut arena, right? They're exempted from the 4% cut requested of the agencies by the Speaker, Lieutenant Governor, and the Governor. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right, well, switching gears to some political news now. Uh, it, it was unclear whether Donald Trump was going to make any big hires in Texas. Obviously, he doesn't have a particularly robust staff yet, as we've written about. Right. There are some big Texas names who are uh, at least on the payroll. Uh, Evan, what do we know? Who's who's going to work for Trump? Well, as an example, Mike Basilis, who is the Republican pollster of record, essentially, for the last X number of political races, you know, he he was the pollster to the stars in Texas uh, and arguably the most consequential Republican pollster, if not most consequential pollster in the state of Texas, has now joined as part of a larger team of pollsters. Trump, who loves to talk about good polls, nothing in the world more than that. He loves that. Um, <laughs> 
hopes to have uh, the greatest polls. The, gra- the best. I, I only we're going to so much winning. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Basilis is now uh, Team Trump. Um, there was a, a blink and you miss it. Uh, a foray into this by Vincent Harris, the fabled, what was that? Yeah, the what fabled digital strategist. I still strategist. don't understand what happened. Well, did, did, did he get fired? Or? So, so, one, so, so it, Vincent Harris, he who had worked for David Dewhurst, who had worked for uh, Rand Paul, he had worked at one point for Ted Cruz. His firm, uh, it was reported, uh, was going to be uh, on uh, Trump's digital team. Uh, then we heard he was out, and the backstory of that was said to be that uh, somebody from Team Vincent Harris leaked the news of his hire, uh, and the Trump people didn't like that, and you know they are iron-fisted in terms of the control of information, the flow of information, and that his firm was fired. He then came back around on Twitter and said, in fact, that's not true, and that I was you know brought in to do a very discreet uh, job for which I was uh, compensated to de- did that, and then was was mm-hmm. done. Uh, not clear exactly uh, what happened. Look, the 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 challenge for Trump in Texas, whether whether it is related to staffing or anything else, is how to make traditional Republicans uh, jump aboard. You've had people who've been Republicans longer than there were Republicans. People like Lionel Sosa in San Antonio say, "I can't." Right. You still have some legislators who were big Ted Cruz people who continue to to seem unwilling to entertain the possibility, even as a check against Hillary Clinton, that they would vote for Donald Trump. For instance, I think Connie Burton is, is, is one, but there are a handful of people who are uh, supportive of, of Cruz in the primary who just are on Twitter and other social media contemptuous of Trump and everything he does. Um, this is a very strange election, as you know, not just in Texas, but everyplace else. She may be the only one he can beat, and he may be the only one she can beat, mm-hmm. right? The, the choices, and yesterday didn't help. The mm-hmm. choices for both sides have gotten to be pretty difficult. And, you know, you have all this, these people in Texas saying, oh, my God, all this email stuff for Hillary. But then they go, yeah, but Trump. Right. Or you have all these people go, oh, my God, I can't believe Donald Trump is a candidate of our party. Yeah, yeah but, but Hillary. Hillary. So, um uh, there was uh, somebody yesterday in the Bear County Republican uh, uh, circles uh, put out a, an email saying that that if left to their own devices, a whole bunch of the delegates to the Republican National Convention from Bear County would not vote for Trump. I think you have a lot of people who feel very ambivalent at best about their choices. Mm-hmm. Can we get back to Basilis for one second? Because sure. I'm, I'm sort of uh, fascinated by that. Is he? But is he? Is he doing national polling for, or is he doing Texas the, polling? The, the read on it from our reporting and other people's reporting was not that he's coming in specifically to do Texas and Texas alone, but that he was joining the national okay. team. Mm-hmm. So presumably his expertise would be leveraged alongside that of other people to, on, on behalf of Trump and polling. Mm-hmm. We'll see. One more quick topic I want to hit. Um, you know, Evan missed the Tribcast last week because he was Brexiting the scene. I was. I, it was Brexcellent. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, no. uh, but I want to just hit quickly on uh, something Greg Abbott said over the Fourth of July weekend. Looked seemed to be capitalizing on on Brexit. Well, while this celebrating is the, the, the yeah. original Brexit. This is the classic. You know, Rick Perry was uh, was there before Greg Abbott was. You know, what was Rick Perry's last few years in office? But one effort after another to pickpocket businesses from other. States, yeah. States um, uh, selling people on the promise of low taxes and predictable regulation and, um, you know, uh, uh, tort reform. I mean, all the sort of tools he had in his arsenal, and he was successful at that. Late, late in his time in office, he was beginning to get questions about, well, but do you have enough water? 
or what's the quality of public right. education or health care. But basically, Rick Perry's efforts on economic development were very successful. And, and Greg Abbott has enthusiastically taken the baton from Rick Perry. And so over the July 4th weekend, in something like 7,000 British websites uh, and in the Financial Times, Times, Greg Abbott essentially said to uh, companies in Great Britain that uh, uh, Brexit is a good reason to Brexit the scene and come to Texas and we have a more hospitable climate for for you tallywhacks or whatever. I just found that whole thing strange (laughs) because, like, why are you using the independence from Britain to urge them to relocate here right after they voted to leave Europe. I mean, what? Right. Uh, what? And the theory was that the pound went down and that the business climate, the post-Brexit reality in Britain at that moment, at that very moment, it's unclear right now whether this is going to persist, is great, you guys shit the bed, basically. You know, you voted for this thing. You didn't understand the full consequence of it. Now, having understood the full consequence of it, you have regret or regrexit or whatever and you wish that you could go back that and that you could undo it and so yeah. the theory so is that the instabil- so the instability <laughs> the instability of the business climate in Great Britain is the Abbott theory would cause some businesses located there to think well you know what this is actually not going to be so great for us let's let's pick up and move uh, to but, Texas but is that the Abbott theory okay. because Republican lawmakers I mean the GOP has been basically like heralding this Brexit you know and, and Dan Patrick I think released a statement that was like you know congrats Congratulations, basically, mm-hmm. on freeing yourselves from. Right. You know, that's what doesn't make sense to me. Is if 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 the GOP in Texas is saying basically applause, way to go. You know, yes, we should all fight for independence. And then Abbott is saying, I think they're separate conversations. I don't it, think I don't think yeah. one necessarily invalidates the other. But by, by the way, I thought you were going to say that the the rank hypocrisy was everybody in the goddamn media writing a Texas story mm-hmm. when they full well know that Texas cannot secede, so they should just stop writing it. Yes, well, we took advantage of that as well. We were first. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure we, we were, were there first, first, but yeah. All right, well, uh, that's all the time we have. We're going to Trexit the Tribcast. <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> yep. That's not bad. Uh, you can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash Tribcast. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Evan, Jay, Alexa, and our producers, Todd and Rodney, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. I hope you aren't recording. I hope you aren't recording.